I speak to you in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Psychologists tell us that all human beings are born with two basic needs, the need to love and the need to be loved. In 1977, I attended a class at USC. No, not that USC, the other one, the University of Southern California. I was in my third year of seminary doing a year-long internship at a parish in Los Angeles. A member of that parish who was a student at USC invited me to audit one of the courses that they were taking. The course was simply entitled Love. It was taught by Dr. Leo Bascaglia. And in 1972, Dr. Biscaglia had written a New York Times bestseller by that same title. One of the key principles that Dr. Biscaglia taught was that love requires taking a risk. He referred to this as the risk of vulnerability. He said that vulnerability is always at the heart of loving. To live and to love is one of life's greatest challenges because it makes us vulnerable to another human being who may choose to reject our love. Well, in today's gospel that you just heard, we're given a vivid and compelling picture of our Heavenly Father who took the risk of vulnerability to the extreme in revealing his deep love for each and every one of us. We'll see just how that love reveals itself in today's parable about the wicked tenants. In Matthew's gospel, which is a very Jewish gospel, in its constant reiteration that Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic hope of Israel, what occurs on the timeline of Jesus' life particularly in the last days of his life, are three specific events that ultimately lead up to his death. The first is his entrance into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey amidst the cries of praise from the crowds. Blessed is the son of David. Hosanna is the son of David. With people strewing their cloaks and their palm branches before him. The second event took place when Jesus drove the merchants and the money changers out of the temple. And the third event was when Jesus dried up or cursed a fruitless fig tree. The fig tree was one of Israel's prominent symbols. When Jesus passed by this fig tree, he saw that it looked very healthy, and yet it bore no fruit whatsoever. Just like that fig tree, when he looked at the temple, on the outside it looked healthy enough, but on the inside the people bore no fruit. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God had said, my people sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. In other words, their faith was not an active faith because it bore no fruit. All three of these symbolic events carry the same message. The message was that the God of Israel had come to call his people to repentance. Make no mistake about it, 
Not a one of these actions won Jesus any favor with the chief priests, the scribes, or the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish people. In fact, they drew their sharp criticism. They challenged Jesus by openly confronting him and saying, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They considered that what he was doing was actually blasphemous, that is, claiming to be God, which of course he was and still is. In a broader view, let's say looking down from 30,000 feet, Jesus was a rather scandalous figure, a real threat to the Jewish leaders because they perceived that he was somehow undermining their authority. The Romans saw Jesus as a threat to them as well because his popularity with the masses of people gave him the kind of power that made them exceedingly nervous. The people wanted him to be their king, to rescue them from the power of the Romans. In fact, he was so popular that the people rallied all around him, not only to hear his inspirational words and teachings, but to get close to him in whatever way they possibly could. And why was this? Well, it was because he possessed powers the likes of which they'd never seen or witnessed before. He was able to heal the sick, restore sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb, make the lame walk, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, turn water into wine, calm the storms on the Sea of Galilee, and feed thousands with just a few small loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And yes, yes, he even raised the dead to life. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and of course Lazarus, all raised from the dead. Well, in a word, he was stealing their thunder and causing people everywhere to begin to follow him because they saw in him the one, the one that they'd been waiting for for so long, the Messiah, their Savior, their Redeemer. As a result, the Jewish leaders were becoming very fearful that they were losing their grip on their power and on their influence over the people. Take a look at verse 46, for instance, the last line of this gospel. They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They knew that something drastic had to be done with this Jesus of Nazareth, and it had to be done soon. So they were trying to find a way to arrest him, and yes, even to put him to death. Once Jesus had entered into the city of Jerusalem, he began telling a wide variety of stories, parables mostly, stories about the cross, stories about judgment, stories about vineyards, like the one that you heard in today's gospel, and like the one you heard about in today's reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Mind you, on the timeline of Jesus' life, these stories were told, some of them, just three or four days before he would be crucified by the same leaders about whom he was telling these stories. Now, like most of Jesus' parables, he used characters and images that pointed outside of themselves to real people. 
Sometimes those people were abstract, like the prodigal son. After all, he could have represented any lost soul who was returning to his father to make amends for something he'd done wrong. At other times, the characters and images are, are much more concrete, like those in today's parable, where God represents the master of the house or the landowner. The tenants represent Israel's religious leaders at their very worst. The servants represent the prophets, which down through the ages, the leaders of Israel repeatedly rejected, abused, and even killed. Jesus is represented as the son of the landowner, and God is the one who plants the vineyard. And the vineyard is not really a place. It's actually a people. It represents the children of Israel. God had formed this people by calling them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they became his chosen people. God had brought this chosen people out of Israel, out of the slavery of Egypt, by his great mercy and his stupendous power. Think about the parting of the Red Sea or the giving them manna in the morning and quail every evening. And then having wandered around in the desert of the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years, they were planted, planted like a grapevine in the promised land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord had prepared the fertile soil of that land for this vine, his chosen people, so that they might grow and prosper. And for a time, that's exactly what they did. But then they began to stray. They began to follow other gods. Think about Moses going up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Aaron and the people are down below. They got very impatient with Moses. He didn't come down for days or weeks or months. Who knows how long? They got restless, and so they asked Aaron to make them a god out of all their gold. And so he fashioned a golden calf which they began to worship. Now, Jesus describes the tenants of the vineyard as renters or caretakers. They were the ones that God had left in charge of his beloved vineyard. The problem is they didn't want to be in charge to simply manage the vineyard. They wanted to become its owners. So, in essence, they tore up the lease, made their own set of rules, and restructured the corporation and made themselves the top executives, the CEOs. And just who are these tenants? According to Jesus, they're the chief priests of Israel whose senior vice presidents are the Pharisees. Now, in spite of the great opportunities and all the blessings that God had lavished upon the children of Israel, and those entrusted to serve over them, what did they do? They rebelled. Their rebellion was against God, who had taken the risk of vulnerability to love them and to care for them, the risk that his love might, in fact, be rejected, that they would turn against him, that they would turn to other gods, which is just what they did. 
the arrangement that the landowner had made with the tenants was that when the grapes had been harvested, a percentage of the produce was supposed to be given back to him. However, as you heard, they refused to give him anything. In fact, when his servants came to collect the produce, they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. When the landowner sent other servants to them, more than the first time, they did the same thing to them. You could say that this parable depicts a summary of Israel's bloody history with God's prophets, whom he had sent to warn the people to repent of their sins. Just think about Elijah running for his life and then having to hide in a cave. Or Isaiah, cover your ears, children, being sawn in two. Or Jeremiah being dropped into a well, then kidnapped and taken to Egypt where eventually he died. Or Daniel being thrown into a lion's den. Or Zechariah being stoned to death in the temple. This is how the children of Israel and their rulers treated God's servants, the prophets, whom the Lord had sent to them to persuade them to change their defiant, immoral, and evil ways. Well, at this point in the story, you can't help but wonder to yourself, why on earth is this landlord, who is God, being so patient and going to such an extreme to give these tenants so many chances to comply with their original agreement? Well, the answer is, that he was giving the tenants one last chance. One last chance to get things right, to repent, and to return to the Lord. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is to lead you to repentance? And it's to those tenants, the chief priests and the Pharisees, that Jesus now speaks when he says, What shall I do? I will send my own dear son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. And they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now it becomes perfectly clear that at the very heart and core of this story, we see the immense love that God had for his people, a love wherein God took the risk of being so vulnerable that he would offer up his own dear son for the sake of his people, his chosen people, yes, as well as for all of us. His persistent love will not let go. It refuses to let us go. It will not give up on us. He keeps on loving us, even when we're at our worst. St. Paul says, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's more, this story tells us that the landowner's son was showing that he was of the same essence and the same character 
as his father. For in going right into the belly of the beast, you might say, the chief priests and the Pharisees, Jesus reveals that he is a selfless son and that he is the very image of his father. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I and the father are one. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Henceforth, you know him and have seen him. We see the Father in Jesus and Jesus in the Father. It's the same love. How incredibly patient God was with his chosen people. And how incredibly patient he is with all of us. The prophet Joel writes, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Do you now see the risk of vulnerability that God took in loving his chosen people and being ever so patient with them by giving them every chance, chance after chance, to repent of their ways and to turn their hearts toward him? Know this, that the God of Israel is just as merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness toward all of us as he was toward them. His love never changes. Whenever we turn away from him by worshiping other gods, oh yes, we do. We make other gods for ourselves. Whenever we make anything in our lives of greater importance, or of greater value than he is, we then find ourselves in the same boat as the children of Israel. We're no different than they were. Lest we become too critical and judgmental of them, remember that their story is our story as well. When we point one finger at someone else, anyone else, and say, well, that's their problem and not ours, watch this. Always remember that we have three fingers pointing right back at ourselves. We're in just as much of need of a forgiveness as they are. When we disobey and rebel against God's commandments by either watering them down or rationalizing them away or by simply rejecting them outright, aren't we also rebelling and rebelling against and rejecting God? When we begin to think and say to ourselves that we actually not all that bad, or in comparison, not as bad as many others I know at least, remember that it only takes one sin, only one, to condemn us all together completely and utterly. If we think otherwise, then we become just like those chief priests and Pharisees and in so doing, we too are actually rejecting God's love. Just think about the lengths to which God has gone for each one of us. The lengths to which he goes to forgive us of our sinfulness. The price that our loving Heavenly Father had to pay to redeem us and to restore us into a right relationship with him was inestimable. It cost him the life of his own dear son. Jesus 
paid the price to cleanse us from our sins, a price that we could not pay ourselves. He did so by offering his life as a ransom for us all. His death in our stead nailed our sins to the hard wood of the cross and purchased forgiveness and redemption. The cross. You see, the cross is the ultimate symbol of God taking the risk of vulnerability to love us. So now I'm sure you're probably wondering about that one looming question that still remains. Whatever happened to those wicked tenants? Well, Jesus tells us. The vineyard was taken away from them and turned over to new tenants. We are those new tenants. And we are that vineyard. Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So today I ask all of you, are we men, women, and children, are we people who are grafted into and connected to Jesus, the true vine? Are we the people of God who have been born anew, changed and transformed from the inside out by his redeeming love? Will we be faithful to the master and the landlord, our great God, and bear the, the kind of good fruit not the bad grapes that Isaiah was talking about, but the good fruit that he wants us to produce. The fruit of a life that is totally committed to doing the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. And will we be faithful to him by returning a portion of the produce that he asks us to return? I pray that we will that we will be faithful to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you took the risk of vulnerability to love us and that you sent your Son. You loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into the world and that Jesus would take it upon himself to, to take our sins and to nail them to the cross so that we might be forgiven and receive the hope, the promise, and the assurance of everlasting life. Come, Holy Spirit, and help each one of us to bear the kind of fruit that you want us to bear as members of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.